the book of Proverbs this summer because it's a book of wisdom about so many of the things that matter most in life. And one of those things is our mouth. And it must be a problem for us because there's about 90 verses in the book of Proverbs about your mouth more than anything else, more than sex, more than money, more than friends and family. Why? One of the biggest reasons is because our God is a God of words. Words matter to God, and so they should matter to us who are created in his image as image bearers. In other words, think about this. Our ability to speak and use words is one of the things that sets us apart from the rest of creation as image bearers of a creator God. So in other words, we say this a lot. You are a steward of any of the money that you have because it all comes from God. Guess what? He has made us stewards of words. So you can't just sling them around any way you want. We have a stewardship of words, unlike animals and plants. But here's what I want to do today. I know it's a series on the book of Proverbs, but Proverbs is quite topical. It's hard to find a chapter where you say, there's the communication chapter. So here's what I want to do to frame up this whole subject of the mouth. We're going to grab some Proverbs, but I'm going to frame it up actually by reading a New Testament passage that a lot of people consider to be the New Testament equivalent of the book of Proverbs because it's so practical. It addresses all kinds of practical issues. The book of James. Go there. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And here's also a good example of something I want you to notice. I'm going to read James chapter 3 and just not even take a breath and roll right on into James chapter 4. And here's an example of where you need to realize the chapter divisions and verses were added later and are not inspired. So often it's unhelpful. You feel like you're supposed to stop. And here's a whole new subject. Not true. James chapter 3 tells us all about how serious and dangerous our tongues are. And then James chapter 4, he begins to tell you about the heart that's connected to that tongue and why there's so much conflict and a war of words between us and so many people. I want to ask you to stand as I read God's word, beginning in James chapter 3, verse 1. James 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall, we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. Ooh, not very flattering, eh? So if you didn't think the tongue was a serious problem, I hope you've already changed your opinion short of my sermon. There's God's word just ramping it up. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been created in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring can yield both salt water and fresh. Now, this is a whole series about wisdom. So watch where he goes next. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Now, he's not changing subjects and talking about World War I, World War II, nations going against nations. He's talking about us going to war with other people with our words. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members you lust and do not have? You murder and covet and cannot. Again, he's not talking about homicide. It's talking about how we're willing to murder each other with our words because I want what I want and you are in my way. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, as we dig into this subject, oh my goodness, this could be a 10-sermon series, right? I'm going to try to get something done in one. So if everything that I could do and I prayed about it, here's what I want to try to do. I want to give you a couple of warnings and then some guidance as to how would you start to get more control over your mouth. How would you go about it? Let's start with a warning. Number one, don't ever, ever marginalize or minimize the sins of your mouth. Oh, don't ever be guilty of thinking or saying, hey, I've never committed adultery and I'm not embezzling any money. I'm just kind of fast and loose with my words. That's all, no big deal. You didn't form that opinion from scripture. Hopefully you heard in James 3, oh my goodness, that is not the way God talks about it at all, and you'll never get control over your mouth if you keep treating it as something less than deadly serious. And when the Bible talks about our tongue and our mouths and words, oh, it talks about it as something very sober and serious. Proverbs 18, 21 could not be more serious when it says this, death and life are in the power of the, say it, tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Oh, so much we can learn in this one verse. First, the tongue has power. Secondly, 
Not just any kind of power. The tongue has power regarding some of the most important and ultimate things in life, like death and life, and we're not done. That second half of the verse is basically saying, you're going to have to eat your words. The tongue has power. Life and death. And there will be fruit in your life based on your words that you will have to eat. In other words, you're going to have to live with what your mouth's been doing. You're going to have to live with it. Whether you've been spreading life or you, whether you've been spreading death, the fruit, you're going to have to eat the fruit of it. Why? Because what the Bible teaches is words have power because they always produce some kind of harvest. Always. Words are never neutral. Words are never inconsequential. They always produce some kind of harvest. So you need, to, you need to ratchet it up and start to think, your words and my words are always sowing seeds in the lives of everybody around us. It's just a question of, What's the harvest going to be? A harvest is coming. What's it going to taste like for you? Based on your words, a harvest is coming. What is it going to taste like for you? What is it that you're going to have to eat in the near future because of what you've been saying with your mouth? Words have power because they always produce A harvest. Why? Well, here's what the Bible teaches. They produce a harvest because your words are tied to your, and my words are tied to my heart. And so here, here's why you can't ever say, oh, I didn't mean that. You thought I meant that? I was just joking. Or I wasn't even thinking. You took me serious? I wasn't even thinking. The Bible doesn't leave it fuzzy as to whether or not we're accountable for those moments where you say, I was just joking. I wasn't even thinking. I, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus hits this whole thing head on and he ties our words to our heart and then holds us accountable for all of them. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, For out of the abundance of the, say it, heart, the mouth speaks. Here's the deal. It's true when you can say, now you can't see her heart. You can't judge her. You don't know what she was thinking. True, I can't see her heart. If she'll run her mouth, I can. Your words, don't say, well, well, that's what I was saying. But out of the abundance of every time you speak, we are seeing some of your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every, what kind of word? Careless word they speak. In other words, Jesus gives no place for saying, I didn't really mean that, I wasn't even thinking. Let me give you two lines of reasoning as to why you can't do that based on the Bible. Here's the first. Whenever you speak, it's tied to your heart, even if you were not thinking. In fact, especially when you're not thinking is when we see what's really in your heart. What you truly believe just came out because you weren't being as careful to filter it. It was an unfiltered moment, an unguarded moment, and oops, we just saw your heart. And that's why it's, there's no place for saying, well, I, didn't, I haven't been sleeping well. And I, I mean, please just don't take serious anything I've said to you because I'm so tired. My allergies are bothering me, this, that, and the other. Folks, when we're well-rested and my allergies aren't bothering me and my job isn't on the bubble... I can make the extra effort to be careful what I say. It's in those unfiltered moments 
that you really see what someone believes, especially when you weren't thinking. And secondly, the reason we can't go down that path and argue that way is what you see from Matthew 12 with Jesus talking is your, look at me, your words don't have to be intentional for you to be accountable for them. He doesn't say you're gonna, you're gonna in the day of judgment give an account for every carefully scripted word because we know you thought about it, you crafted it, and you said it, you're accountable. He says you're gonna in the day of judgment give an account for every, say it again, careless word. So I hope I've changed your opinion already if you're here and you've been thinking, well, I'm not in trouble with sexual sin and I got a handle on my money. My mouth's just a little bit out of control, whatever. No, don't think just because you're not in trouble with sexual sin or some other heinous sin that you've got nothing to work on and that you've got nothing to fear in the day of judgment. That's not how the Bible talks. Now, the book of Proverbs catalogs so many ways that we sin with our mouth, deception and lying and manipulation and boasting, and I want to focus on one. I want to dig in a little bit on one. I'm going to highlight one mouth sin because here's what I have become convinced of. I'm going to focus on one mouth sin because I think it is so deadly, but it is so attractive to us and we sadly so often push it into the category of, oh, that's a respectable sin because everybody does that. I'm talking about gossip. Gossip. And let's define the problem for a moment. Gossip is sharing bad or negative or unfavorable information about someone behind their back to someone else. Here's what I want you to stay with me a minute. And it's true. Sometimes what I'll hear, well, it's true. Everything I said is true. That doesn't matter. See, slander and gossip are not synonyms. Did you know that? Slander is when you create or pass on and repeat information about someone that is not true. That's slander. Gossip is passing on negative Bad, unfavorable information about someone behind their back to someone else. And it's true. Bible calls it a sin. And it must be something we love to do because the book of Proverbs comes after this in more than one place. But I want to just show you one. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 20 and following. Without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down into a man's inmost parts. It's worth noting how the Holy Spirit chose to describe gossip. You know what the word morsel is? The word morsel usually refers to something small, and yet it is something delicious that pleases us and delights us. It's little, but it's a delicacy, a morsel. It is a delicacy that we love and it pleases us so much. He's saying gossip is so delicious to us and we love it because we love negative information or bad stuff about other people and don't keep looking at me like that. It's not just me. You think about the, you think about the grocery store tabloids right there near the register. It's not like, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm not drawn to that at all. Sure you are. And notice the headlines. Bad, bad stuff. And notice the pictures. Hideous photos of celebrities caught in some of the most unflattering moments. Praise God, Angelina Jolie can look that bad. Yes, I love it. I don't want to see her dressed up for an awards. I want to see they caught her on the way to the beach or on the sidewalk, and she looks bad. Hallelujah. 
Why do we love that? We want them caught with a very unflattering photo. We want negative headlines. We want dirt. We want the bad stuff. Well, let me tell you why I think we're so prone to gossip and why it's so delicious to us. There is a lot going on in the heart that drives gossip that you may not be aware of, but there's some really ugly stuff that is the reason why it's such a choice morsel. Here's what I think's going on. We gossip because we like being in the know and we feel like an insider with someone else. Soon as you gossip, you've drawn a line in the stand. There's those of us that know this and those that don't. We do. Oh, that's big. C.S. Lewis has an entire essay he titled The Inner Circle where he describes the extents to which human beings are willing to go and what they'll do to get in that inner circle. I wanna be in that inner circle. We like that. We gossip because it makes us feel powerful and important to be sharing private or secret information about someone else that everybody doesn't know. We gossip as a way of promoting ourselves and putting down other people. And we gossip because we hope it will help us gain acceptance with this person listening to us because we're hoping this moment we've shared now together will build an alliance with us against her or against him. All these ugly things are going on. Idle, uh, gossip is not just idle chit-chat. There is a very ugly heart that fuels the gossiping mouth. Why is it so hard to not repeat something bad you just learned? Why can't Christians just say, I can go directly to the throne of grace and pray on behalf of that dear sister. And oh, by the way, I don't even know if half of that's true, but oh my goodness, how her heart must be breaking if it is. I'll just pray. Here's sometimes what it sounds like. Oh, did you hear? It's so sad. So I want you to pray. No, you're not sad. Shut up. We frame it up and we make it sound like we're sad and we want them to pray. You can pray all by yourself And I do not believe that your heart is being driven by getting them to pray also so that now there's two human beings praying. It's uglier than that. See, the gossip is someone who is seeking social acceptance at the expense of someone else. The gossip is someone who is trying to create a coalition or a sense of connectedness with other people. They're just doing it in a very superficial and sinful way. So here's often, this is so true very often. Very often some of our ugliest sins are driven to some extent by something that's appropriate and normal. Because we're not golden retrievers, our houseplants, we long for relationship and connectedness with other people. We wanna be accepted, we wanna be connected, we want relationships, that is not a sin. That is normal because you're created in the image of God. That's why we long for that. Because we're sinners, we often try to get it in very sinful and destructive ways. This thing is driven by a normal desire for connectedness and relationship. You're just doing it in a very destructive and sinful way. Way. Even Psychology Today magazine. I love it when unbelievers state similar things. Listen to what they said. They ran a cover story on gossip some years ago. And they said this, gossip is more than just idle chit chat. It is also how we arrange our world as social animals. People gossip because we are storytelling creatures who thrive on competition, intimacy, and relationships. And then they went on to illustrate it this way. They said, quote, human gossip is like a monkey picking lice from another's fur. Now I want you to never forget that. (laughs) Every time you gossip, you are a baboon with a big pink raw butt picking a lice off this other person and eating it. That's you. Ugly, right? Because here's what it went on to say. 
Here's what they went on to say, and it's so true. The weak groom the strong more than vice versa. It's the weak baboon that picks the lice off the strong because the weak one wants the strong to like him. They're saying, and I believe it also, weaker people gossip to someone they want to like them. This is the way I'm hoping you'll like me. I'm giving you privileged information and you should really like me because I chose you. I'm giving, so now we got this thing between us, right? Right? That's what they're saying is going on. The weak groom the strong more than vice versa. People supply information to whom they are attracted and with whom they wish to align themselves. When I give you a tidbit of gossip saying, remember, it's a secret. Don't tell anybody else. I'm also telling you that you are valuable enough to be a recipient and that you should think well of me for choosing you. I'm telling you. We use information to form advantageous alliances that we hope will provide some stability and ideally an upper hand to our place in the social hierarchy. Now, I've been alive for 55 years and a pastor for 31 years, and I believe that's true. So let me help you, surprise you first, and then help you. If you're sitting here thinking, huh, Praise God. I don't gossip. It's just that everybody tells me stuff. I don't know why they choose me. Let me help you. Let me help you know why they choose you and what you can do so that they'll never choose you again. Money back guarantee. They will never choose you again if you do what I'm about to say. Because I hope you understand, not only is the gossip sinning, the one who's willing to listen to it is sinning and just as big of the part of the problem. This thing can come to an end if people will stop gossiping and if they can't find anyone who will listen to it. I wanna give you two questions and one bold statement. I think will permanently take you off the list of the top gossips who are looking for someone to hear it. Here's the first question. Why are you telling me this? And ask it as soon as you can. Interrupt if you can. As soon as you realize where this is headed, oh, this is bad and I didn't know anything about this. Whoa, I'm not a part of the solution. Interrupt. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you telling me this? Very often that can help someone pause and realize, oh, that's right. I mean, we're all guilty of, right? You know something, and before you know it, you didn't go there saying, now, when I get to McDonald's, I'm gonna tell her about this. But all of a sudden, oops, it's coming. You can help someone by just saying, whoa, 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 whoa. What, why are you telling me this? And if they say so that you can pray, <laughs> say, why don't you just pray? Because you see what happens? I know this about them now. It would be better if I did not know this. I don't even know if it's true. Why are you telling me this? Okay, maybe you didn't realize it. It happens where all of a sudden all these words come out and in a whirlwind, it's in your lap and you, before you realize it, they're done. You heard the whole thing. You're like, oh, ask this. Now that you've told me this, what are you going to do about it? And what do you want me to do about it? Because basically what you're asking them is why would you pass on this bad information if you haven't been willing to talk to them and even find out what's true or not true or help them? Love would say, how can I help? And now let me give you one bold statement. Oh, they'll run from you. Run. Now that you've told me this, you've obligated me to make sure that you now go to them and talk to them about this because you can't keep just going around telling people this. So how long should I wait before I follow up with you to see if you've talked to them about this? Would 24 hours be long enough, two days? Let me know because I am now obligated to be a part of the solution to settle this down. So if you don't go to them, I am gonna go to them and tell them what you told me and bring them to you to see if we can sort this all out. (laughs) They won't choose you ever again. Ever, ever, ever. Trust me, 
all the heartache and confusion and pain and destruction that could be avoided in church families or in any group of human beings if everyone would make a commitment not to gossip and not to be willing to listen to it. Do not make it easy on those who would like to gossip. Do not be a target or one to whom they can go. Amy Carmichael was a missionary in India for 55 years. And she had this hard, fast rule she had created at her mission statement, a statement, station, that was stated this way. Never about, always to. You understand what she's saying? Don't ever be talking about somebody. Talk to them. And if you're talking about them and you haven't talked to them about it, you shouldn't be talking about it at all. Guess what the number one problem is on the mission field with missionaries? It is not the poison darts of the pagans shooting at them. It's other missionaries killing each other with words, conflict and drama and controversy. That's what she learned. Missionaries come home because of conflict with other missionaries because they're sinners. Never about. Always two. Two. But let me give you some good news. As destructive as our words can be, remember Proverbs 18.1, he says, 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Here's the second reminder I want to give you. Don't ever forget that words are the currency with which you invest in what matters most. Other people. Other people. Words are a currency where you can invest. Oh, yes, as much as gossip tears people down and destroys people, words can build people up. With your words, you can encourage other people. Now, as soon as I said that, if you just thought, oh, encourage one another, whatever. The word encourage literally means to put courage back into someone's heart. Oh my goodness, that is not a little thing. That is not a little thing. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25 says, anxiety in the heart of a man causes depression. Some translations say weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Oh, listen to me. You can put courage back into someone's heart with your words. That is why I try to practice. I am not perfect by any means. And if you've been here a while, you certainly know that. But i tell you this, I just, as I've gotten a hold of this and understood this more and more, I just love using words on my way to the bathroom. I'm gonna st- stick my head in somebody's office and say, thank you for what you've been doing. You went the extra mile. Words, 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 words. The guy pushing the cart at LA Fitness, thank you for cleaning this place up. What would this look like without you being here? Words, words. That's why I write so many cards and notes and send them to people with words, including some scripture verses that are God's word, but my words, I believe the Bible teaches, my words could put courage back into a single mom's heart, a widow's heart, a young couple's heart. Words, literally life-giving, that it could change what they feel, what they were thinking, and what they think they could actually do next because of your words. And get this, it's free, folks. This isn't a giving series where you say, well, I wish I had some money to give. Every single one of you have words. And you could start investing in other. It's free. Just like Peter said to the man lame at the gate, silver and gold have I not, but what I do have I give to you. You have words. Become an encourager. Oh, our world needs more of it. I try to do it everywhere I go. We were just recently in Gatlinburg. It's a, it's a holiday town, so I assume it's just horrific to try to get employees, right? Every summer we need to hire them. So I'm at Texas Roadhouse, my favorite steak place. I'm thinking it's going to be terrible. Just because it's, you know, it's, it's people they've just grabbed and they don't have enough. It was excellent. Everything was just like ours in Fort Wright. So I see this guy going by with a shirt that makes him look like he's more important than everybody else. And I, and I wave to him. I was like, oh, oh, are you the manager? I do this all the time. And this happens every time like this. The look on his face was like, oh, God of the heavens. No. 
right? Because when's the only time any of us flag down the manager or talk to the principal at school? I did the same thing at Dixie High School. I never went to her and complained. I went and said, thank you for being a leader. I can't imagine what you deal with. You've got a great team of teachers. You're running a good place. Leadership is so hard, and I'm grateful you have allowed us to school our kids in a great way. I sent her cards, and whether they're Christians or not, she'd say, I have my, your card on my desk. This existing principal said to me last time when she saw me, she said, those verses you sent me, I slid them under the glass on my desk. And I decided to look at those every morning as my computer boots up instead of being looking at my phone. That's how much that encouraged her. Words. And I said to the guy, thank you. This is great. It was the same standard we have at home. And he just lit up and began to tell me he's worked there 17 years. I could tell he cared. He said, we're a training center. We bring people in from other places to show them how it's done here. I said, you are doing a great job. And I didn't share the gospel, but I left a card with a big fat tip so that, you know, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do with this. You mean a Christian was nice? I thought all they did was just scream at people and tell us we're going to hell. I wanted to rock his world. Christian was encouraging. Words. Your words can put courage into someone's heart. Your words can build someone up. Think about the stories that you hear. Someone had a conversation with someone, a teacher or a coach or a dad or a grandmother, and someone says, I've never forgotten that. When they said to me or they asked me this question, Words have power to change a life. That's why Proverbs chapter 10 says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. The lips of the righteous feed many. Our lips should be feeding many. But let me tell you this, some of the most important words and life-giving. Your words can put on display the gospel by giving and receiving forgiveness. Look at me. Will you please forgive me? And yes, I forgive you are some of the most life-changing words you could ever speak into a relationship. Unbelievers know nothing of that. Here's what I keep learning as a pastor. Sadly, even believers sometimes go their whole life and have never said either one of those things. Some of you have a marriage or a relationship that is on life support. It's hanging on by a thread. And a communication technique book isn't going to fix that. Oh, Either one of these phrases could literally change the direction of that relationship. Forgiveness. Who do you need to forgive? And to whom do you need to go and ask, will you please forgive me? We've been at war long enough. Will you forgive me? Here's the way I would say it to you. Relationships. Relationships cannot be sustained in any meaningful way. Meaningful way. You can fake it and you can have a shallow superficial relationship in any meaningful way whenever forgiveness becomes optional. We've got Christians that know it. They treat it as optional. Well, I'm still thinking about it. I might forgive her. I might not. That's my choice. God commands you to forgive. Relationships cannot be sustained in any meaningful way whenever forgiveness becomes optional. In fact, when forgiveness becomes optional, stay with me, relationships become fragile and unsustainable and sadly sometimes disposable. You will start throwing out things that matter most. People. And that relationship could have been saved by forgiveness. It's not optional. Puts on display the gospel. 
But now let me help you know where to start. If you'd say, I need help with my mouth. Where would I start, Brad? Number three, you'll never muzzle your mouth until you first discover what's going on in your heart. Oh, sure. Proverbs 21, 23 says, the one who guards his mouth and tongue keeps himself out of trouble. No doubt. But what did we learn two weeks ago? Proverbs 4.23 comes way before 21.23 and talks about a much bigger issue. Proverbs 4.23, guard your, say it, heart with all diligence for out of it flows the issues of life, including your, where you can memorize mouth verses till the cows come home. And you'll just keep saying, oh my goodness, why, 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 why? Till you discover what's going on in your heart. Your words will continue to reflect your heart until you repent on a heart level and figure out what, what, what am I wanting? What are my desires? And so that's where James chapter four is so helpful that we read it at the early part of the hour. Here's what he's trying to help us with. Oh yeah, the tongue is a deadly poison. It's a fire, it's horrific, it's, it's filled with hell. You want to know why fights and quarrels exist among you? Is it not your desires for pleasure that war in your... You want something. What causes fights and wars among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you don't receive it because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Notice one big theme in those three verses. You, your desires and what you want and what you can't get and what you're willing to do to get it, you will go to war with people, with words. But there was a war in your heart already something you'd built a fortress around something you'd built an altar in front of something that for you frames up life has to be this way I have to have this this is what I need and if you get in my way God help you my words will just unleash on you notice James when he answers the question where do wars and fights come from among you here's how the world would talk James doesn't say, is it not your lack of effective workshop training in conflict resolution skills? We need to set up workshops in churches and in businesses. And, and don't hear me saying there's not some help there. But guess what? You can have a workshop training on conflict resolution and better communication and still destroy each other if the heart hasn't changed. If you don't figure out What are people wanting? There's competing agendas. It's my kingdom come versus your kingdom come. Until that comes to an end, there'll be a war of words. There'll be no lasting change. James takes it in a radically different direction and says, is it not your desires for pleasure that war in your memory? There was already a war inside of you before a war with anyone around you broke out. Go there, go there. And notice, he doesn't even say, is it not the evil desires? He does not say that. A desire, the Greek word is anything, it's epithumia. Anything you want strongly enough that it motivates behavior. It's something I want, it could be a good thing, but you want it so badly, it's morphed into a demand In my own life, if you've been here a while, then you know this, but it bears repeating. In my own life, 23 years old, first job at a church, I want to be, I kid you not, I wanted to be the best pastor ever. I want to do this right. I do. What I didn't recognize is that morphed in my heart into I want to be loved and well thought of by everybody in our church. There were 600 of them. And believe it or not, that's not as hard to do as you would think. It was doable. I figured out what to do to have everybody love you. It came at a cost. I had one very unhappy woman, happened to be my wife, whatever, 
And I got 600 people that love me. Oh my goodness, thought I hung the moon. But there was a war of words that broke out in our little mobile home. And what are you supposed to say as a woman? You know, I, you know, just, honey, we gotta give her all, 100%. Kingdom business for the glory of God. Uh, you know, she'd have to say, well, I don't love Jesus like you do. I wanna see you tomorrow. That just sounds lame. And so I would frame it up in a way that like, what can she say? But I couldn't see. This wasn't always all being driven by the glory of God. This was for the glory of Brad. I fell in love. It was intoxicating being loved like that. Now, it's still hard for me, but at least I'm aware of it. I mean, think about it. It's hard when you tell someone, no, I can't come to your graduation thing. They want me there. No, I can't pray at your shopping center this opening. No, I can't. The, the requests just pour in and nobody's happy when you don't say yes. I had to be willing to be ill thought of by some other people to actually do what God was calling me to do in my marriage. Oh my goodness, Vicki would say what she would say and I would say what I would say and we would do it again and we went round and round and round and round and round and a communication technique book was never gonna solve our problem until God, by his grace, helped me to see my heart. The war of words could only come to an end once I recognized the internal war that I had created of trying to get something I'm not supposed to get. Where do wars and fights come from among you? David Pallison says, quote, I have yet to meet a couple locked in hostility and the accompanying fear, self-pity, hurt, self-righteousness, who really understood and reckoned with their motives. James 4, 1 to 3, that teaches that, oh, get this, just like I don't want you to forget the baboon with the raw pink butt picking lice. Here's a phrase I want you to keep. Cravings underlie conflicts. Cravings under. If you got conflict, you or both, somebody craving something. There's something you want. There's something you're demanding. There's something you're going after hard. Cravings underlie conflicts. Why do you fight? It's not because my wife or my husband, this, that, or the other. It's because of something about you. Couples who see what rules them. Cravings for affection, attention, power, vindication, control, comfort, a hassle-free life can repent and find God's grace made real to them and then learn how to make peace. There'll never be peace between you and other people until the war within you and that craving is identified and repented of. It might be a good thing. All I want is a marriage that, okay, that's fine. Keep it like this, not this. All I want is to work hard at work and be recognized and have people say, work hard. Sometimes they recognize it, sometimes they don't. When it goes from this to this, you've gone to war and there's a craving and there's gonna be a conflict and your mouth won't change until you're able to repent in that area. Because notice what James says is the beginning of repentance. You say, all right, help me, Brad. Look at verse seven. Therefore, submit to, he doesn't say to each other, that's not where to start. Somebody's right, somebody's wrong. Submit to who? God. See, here's what you need to understand. The war that you've got with other people is almost always a reflection of an internal war you already have with God that life isn't looking like you think it has to look. You're not getting what you think you have to have. And so you go to war with your words to manipulate, to control, and to punish other people to get what you think you have to have that you're not getting. Submit to God. Humble yourself. Then he does say, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Repent of the specific worldly tactics you're using against each other. But then notice where he goes, heart. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So you can't want two things at the same time. Brad Bigney couldn't say, I live for the glory of God and glory of me. No, it's gotta be glory of God only, his kingdom come, his agenda. Purify your hearts. What is going on in your heart? Oh my goodness, does this sound hard? 
It's not hard. It's impossible unless you have the humble, resurrected, living word. Jesus ruling and reigning in your hearts. Since we're talking about words, as we close, let me show you. John 1, go there, John 1. Words are so important that one of Jesus' names is not just wonderful, counselor, lily of the valley, alpha, omega. He is the word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He's in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Skip to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We don't just need a muzzle for our mouths. We needed a Savior full of grace and truth to take on flesh, step into our world and rescue us from our sinful hearts because the murderous, filthy, hurtful words that are spewing out of our mouths are tied to a sinful, craving heart. And it took a savior to rescue us from ourselves. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't want you to start with your mouth. I want you to start with your master. Who's your master? Who do you ultimately serve? What do you want? Why do you do what you do and say what you say and what is most important to you? Until you have Jesus, the living word in your life, ruling and reigning as king, you'll never control your mouth. But maybe you're here and you're a Christian. You say, Brad, I'm a Christian, but I still have a massive war of words with me and other people around me. Listen to me. You don't need to probably memorize another mouth first. Let me tell you what I think you should do. Cultivate greater intimacy with your relationship with Jesus Christ. You're not satisfied enough in him. That's why John Piper says, sin is what we do, and that includes sins, when we're not satisfied In God, I'm not getting what I want. I don't think I have the things I need, so I go to war with people around me to get it. You'll never get from other people what Jesus can only do for you. Oh, rest in him, submit to him, and then trust him that he'll give you what you need that you'll never get from other people. Oh God, thank you for not just your word of instruction, But your son, the living word who came into our world to rescue us, not just from the war of words with our mouths, but from the war within us to promote and crave our own kingdom, our own agenda. Oh God, thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray.